0: Nation of Israel has never occupied the full extent of the land that God has entered into covenant to occupy. So, there's some future elements here. Now, if I can think of where the New Testament ministry
1: confirms the seed. I can't think of anywhere. To
0: well, it refers to the covenant, which would include all three elements. It's probably good to look at that passage. Let's go back. Let's look at Galatians three, so you can see that. Start in verse six. Read 6-9, through nine, Eric. Through Galatians six. 3, 6-9. Six
2: Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, that's 15, Genesis 15, fifteen six
3: 6
2: Verse uh, 7. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand.
0: Notice six. that. Preach the gospel. In other words, the covenant actually encapsulates something of the gospel. Abraham understood a gospel message that related to trusting in Yahweh by faith. And that's the point of just making. Keep reading. Stopped you in the middle of verse 8. That's
2: right. All the nations will be blessed in you.
0: That is one of the stipulations of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, he's quoted, this is the tie-in Jim, this is the tie-in to the Abrahamic Covenant. He quotes right out of it. Keep reading verse 9. So then,
2: those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer.
0: The nations are blessed. Remember, the gospel today is to go out to the nations, and the nations are blessed in Christ as they believe in Jesus Christ. They receive the blessing that was promised to Abraham. See how it all ties together? And if that's not clear enough, uh, Jim, keep reading. Read Verse, skip down to verse 14. In order that, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might be the Gentiles. You could even translate that nations. ethne. Keep reading. So that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The promise of the Spirit through faith is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, it's not, it doesn't speak of the land here, but it speaks of the blessing extended to the Gentiles. And it's one covenant... So a reference to that covenant includes everything else. Now the descendant aspect is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is that ultimate seed of Abraham. And implied in that, it would include the land as well. But the land doesn't come into play here because that will not come into play until the future. That's catalogical. See the long-range perspective? We're going to have to see, and this is one of the things that I mentioned earlier, there has to be a fulfillment of the land aspect. That eliminates all millennialism because it spiritualizes all of those. It has to have the descendants of Abraham in the land. The Abrahamic covenant will not be fulfilled till the millennial kingdom, if you put all the other passages together. See that? Could you, could you say completely fulfilled?
2: Because yes. part of it was fulfilled in Christ. Yes. So, okay.
0: Yeah, partial so, fulfillment. Yes, partial fulfillment in Christ. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's Israel today, a very small part. It doesn't even extend into Egypt, and it stops short there near Syria. That's the extent today. And historically, that is about the extent of the land throughout the history of Israel. It was a little bit larger in the time of uh, David and Solomon. And the third element, there's the seed, there's the land, and there's the blessing. And that's what the Galatians passage talks about. It implies a seed. In fact, it talks about a seed in that context. And Jesus is the ultimate seed. So that's the Abrahamic covenant. That's the stipulation. Is the major of, stipulation. does that tie back to Genesis three fifteen? It says, "In your seed," because mm-hmm. I've heard. I mean, that's the beginning of the line. Yeah. In other words, that's the first seed will come through the woman. It'll be a descendant that comes through yeah. the woman. Because I, I mean, I, I, the. Hebrew word for
2: seed is masculine. And yes. Singular. yes. And so Paul it seems like he's making a connection with both, not, not just in uh, Genesis with Abraham, but also in Genesis with uh, Adam and
0: Eve. Yes. Yeah, I think so. Uh-huh. So those stipulations are long range, some of which have not even been fulfilled today. The signing of it, that little ceremony in chapter 15, indicates that it's unconditional. When the animals are cut, and that was a way that covenants were ratified or contracts were ratified, they would cut the animals in half and the two parties would walk between the parts. And what was implicit in that is if we, any one of the parties, violate this covenant, then they are to be treated like these animals. They are to be cut in half. In other words, they are to be killed But what does what happens in that ceremony in uh, Genesis 15? God's the one who goes through. Abraham's asleep. God puts him to sleep, so it's an unconditional covenant. So you could consider that ceremony something of a ratification or a signing of that covenant. So you have all of the elements of contracts in there, and then there's a sign, just like there's a sign of the Noahic covenant. That's spelled out in chapter 17, where we have a reiteration of the covenant as circumcision. So the, the descendants will be identified physically, at least the males. Okay? So it's instituted, it's confirmed in chapter 17 to Abraham. And again, in chapter 22, this is after another example of faith. In fact, the high point in Abraham's life, chapter 22... It's reinstituted or reiterated, you might say, to Isaac in chapter 26. And I'm giving you this just to stress the importance of this covenant in Genesis. And we're going to see it again later. It's going to to pop up throughout the Old Testament. But because we don't think in terms of covenants in our culture, you know, the church is everything, forget about all this background. Mm. That covenant, it will pop up throughout the Old Testament and it pops up in Galatians 3, and there's other places as well. So it's reinstituted to uh, Isaac, and would you expect it? Do you expect the end of it there? Obviously, i have kind of giving the answer away here. You'd expect through the father of the 12 tribes who will make up the nation, you would expect it uh, reiterated to him as well. And you do in chapter 28, chapter 35 as well. Twenty-eight, thirteen through fifteen, thirty-five, nine through. Or just and re Yes. In other words, it's re, it's emphasized. This is a contract that God entered into with these people. So it's not the. That's why I put in that the parties are not just Abraham and God. In this case, it's Abraham and God and Abraham's descendants through Isaac. And that's not all. We're going to see when we get to the next major event in Exodus. It's remembered and. God is going to act in Exodus to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt in his response to the Abrahamic covenant. And it's clearly spelled out in Exodus, particularly chapter 2, verse 24. And it's also later on referred to in 2 Kings seventeen fifteen. This is towards the end of Israel's history in the Old Testament. So, reiterated several times.
2: Even in the 15th passage, He mentions that they're going to go into slavery, right? Oh, yeah. For 400
0: years. Yeah, he lays out their future history.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, we're going to see that eschatologically. Yep, exactly. So for the nations, the way the nations will be blessed is in the way that they treat God's nation. Several provisions. So that's God's long-range covenant. And there are several fulfillments. We touched on one. It was fulfilled in Abraham's experience. He had many servants. He had a, an abundance of wealth. This is the blessing aspect. God promised that he'd be blessed. He was blessed with descendants. The Pharaoh
2: gave him all the wealth. <laughs> well, that's later. Yeah,
0: yeah. The, the nation of Israel, God blessed them in protecting them in their formation, po- taking them out of the land of Egypt. That's part of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. He gave them a land. That's under Joshua. See the long-term fulfillments here? And throughout, they were blessed. Throughout, they were blessed. And in the world, the nations are blessed and or cursed. I've been reiterating that. And particularly in Christ, we have the blessings of salvation. It's part of fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. Has God kept his covenant? Yes. Absolutely. Well, if he, he didn't,
2: would, he would die, and he can't die. That's right. <laughs> so it's kind
0: of the catch 22 yes. Absolutely. <laughs> or the alternative view a catch 22. Oh, yeah. There still awaits a future blessing when all of the nations will even be blessed more so than even in Christ. Because they will, the nations that enter the kingdom will have the blessings of Christ, the salvation blessing, and they will have material blessing as well in the kingdom. So it has to be a material kingdom. It can't be an millennial kingdom. And it can't be related to the church, so it can't be a post-millennial. It has to be with Israel. And all the nations will be blessed in the kingdom. So there's aspects that still await fulfillment. And there's other promises to Abraham. The passage that Eric was referring to. Israel in bondage in Egypt. That's chapter 15, 13, and 14. That's predicted in relationship to the Abrahamic covenant. Because in chapter 15, that's in the middle of God entering into covenant with Abraham. You can include in that, there's other promises to Jacob as well. There's a future of Jacob's son. This is eschatologically. In other words, there's a future, promises that are long-range. And Jacob's son's, God gave Jacob revelation in Genesis 49 he looks forward as to some of the outcome of the, those tribes, those sons that will eventually into tribe. and mo- much of that has been fulfilled in their history. So, as had logically, this, this looks ahead in a lot of the detail. Just to remind you, I showed you this slide last time of the covenants. We looked at the Noahic covenant and its long-range effects, also an unconditional covenant, the Abrahamic covenant is going to lay out parameters for the rest of world history. It's unconditional. No matter what Israel does, no matter what man does, God is going to fulfill that covenant, and he has in Christ already, and will in terms of a future kingdom. There are three aspects of it. Remember, there's the seed aspect, there's the land aspect, and there's a blessing aspect. And I put The Abrahamic, like an umbrella, because it is the controlling covenant for other covenants later on. And we'll look at them as we go over this overview here. There's another covenant that's very important, Mosaic. That one is conditional between the parties. And God treats the nation of Israel based on certain conditions. Built in to the Mosaic Covenant are those stipulations. In other words, God's going to bless you if you're obedient. God's going to curse you if you're disobedient. So that's the Mosaic. I see a part of the Mosaic is another kind of a sub-covenant. Theologians call it Palestinian. We'll look at it later. It is partly Mosaic, but it also specifies more the land aspect of the Abrahamic Covenant. Does that make sense? So the Palestinian covenant is unconditional in that Israel will eventually take ownership and occupy the entire land that's spelled out in Genesis 15, 18. And on, 18 to 20. So it's unconditional in that ultimately God's going to fulfill it. It's unconditional because it's part of the Abrahamic covenant. But it's also conditional and Israel is going to be cast out of the land when they're disobedient, and they're going to experience captivity, scattering, and that's happened historically as well. But ultimately, Israel will be in the land. So it will be ultimately completely fulfilled, but historically, through time, they're in and out of the land, and they have some extent of the land, sometimes less than other times, sometimes a little bit more. It's interesting that today... This is the big debate: mm-hmm. two-state uh-huh. setup. That is taking land that belongs to Israel and putting it under foreign authority here. So we're we're dealing with the same issues in our culture right here.
1: So anything can so-called Palestinians back to the Canaanites? No, so no, they, they're they don't really have. There's really no such thing. And historically, Palestinians.
0: There's never been it's a
1: people group today.
0: No, there's never been a Palestinian ethnic group, even, much less a nation. There's never been a Palestinian nation. They are refugees. And some of them have come from Syria, some of them have come from Iraq, some of them have come from Jordan, some of them come from Lebanon. They are all refugees that have no claims on the land. Very interesting. We could talk more on that, but we don't want to get into politics.
2: <laughs> Not at
0: all. We're going to talk about a Davidic covenant. That one gives more specification to the seed. It's going to define the ultimate seed is going to be a king, and that ultimate seed is going to come from the line of David, and there's going to be a dynasty of descendants from David. That's what the Davidic covenant deals with. So it deals with the seed aspect. So it also is under the Abrahamic, and that makes it an unconditional. And there's one more covenant. You remember that one? This one's an interesting one. New covenant. And it deals with the blessings. Come, deals with the blessings. The new covenant. And the interesting thing is, if this is a covenant, what right do you and I, as members of the body of Christ, have in relationship to this covenant? Are we parties? Did God change his mind? We'll talk about that. We need to get you to come back.
3: Keep <laughs> it <laughs> interesting, right?
0: Not, yeah. Just a preview. We'll talk a little bit about that. Okay. I summarize all the Old Testament as anticipating Messiah. Short little summarization of the entire Old Testament. All the way from Genesis to the end to Malachi. Anticipating Messiah. Genesis, I summarize as the origin of Israel. This is where Israel comes from. From the original creation all the way to the descendants of Jacob, and they're in a predicament at the end of Genesis. But we have the origin of Israel. The next major division of the Old Testament I call emergence of Israel. In other words, Israel is now going to come about as a nation. And it's going to take a long process, and it'll include a lot of the books of the Bible. So far, we've just only been in Genesis. But now we go from Exodus all the way to Judges, the emerging of Israel. And then we'll have another phase after. So the next major event is the Exodus. Next major event is the Exodus, and we'll include law with it. First implication, this is the implication slide. Exodus, and you might even include law as things that are contributing to the birth of a nation. They're not a nation yet. In fact, let's jump ahead. What does it take to have a nation? Language or land. <laughs> land, I think, yeah. Well, I said borders. You said borders, okay.
1: Depends
0: you said what, language? Depends on language, law, and borders. Law and borders, okay. You you missed one important element Land, mm-hmm. if you don't
1: have a land.
0: <laughs> well, you need something else. <laughs>
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) 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 Too obvious for you. You need a common people. I'm jumping ahead. You need at least three things. You need a common people, and you need something that binds those people together. We call that a constitution, and you have to have a land. So this period of time, God is going to bring all those things together, and we have the nation of Israel. Exodus is the birth where we have the beginnings of a people that is unified. They don't have the land yet, so you couldn't consider them basically a full-fledged nation yet. Eschatologically, the book of Exodus, one of the things that we need to look at, it comes, uh, the whole story of the Exodus is God remembering his covenant and God acting and taking the next step. He has created a people. He has created descendants And along the way, those descendants have been blessed. And God has also used, whether they were faithful to him or unfaithful, to bless them more or sometimes to bring them into discipline. But they have not received the land. They've been in and out of the land. And in the book of Exodus, they're in bondage. Now, it's all predicted. So eschatologically, God is going to go back to the Abraham covenant. And let's look at some of these... Prophecies. Skip to ch- Exodus chapter 2. Where did we leave off? Who read last? Mark, Exodus 2. And by the way, there are several of them. I'm just going to give you a couple of them here. Two twenty-three through 25. Now remember, the, the setting of this, Moses has been born, and Moses is being prepared to bring the children of Israel out of bondage. And notice what it says, 23 to 25. Want to read those?
1: Now, it came about in the course of those many days, the king of Egypt died. The sons of Israel sighed
0: because of the bondage, and they cried out. And they cried for help because of their bondage. So God heard their groaning in his covenant with Abraham and Isaac. There you go. See the tie in there? Now, God, we have a anthropomorphism. In other words, God portrayed like a man or like man. Uh, does God have a memory? Does he... Forget things? No, it's just kind of the portrayal. It's the idea. God is now intervening is the whole idea. God is intervening in response. It's like a man remembering, oh, I've got a covenant. I've got a legal requirement here. From God's perspective, he never forgets. It's him. Okay, I'm going to take steps to relieve the bondage of these children. But it's in response to the Abrahamic covenant. And... If you read carefully, you'll see several little examples like that. In fact, several references to this covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why I re- showed you how, why it's reiterated. It's given to Abraham several times, first in promise form, then it's instituted, then it's reinstituted, and, and then we have reinstitution with Isaac and, and Jacob. And notice they're all mentioned. So, this birth of a nation, Let's let's read one more. Eric three six and seven. He said also, I am the God of your father,
2: the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, and was afraid at
0: God. This is the burning bush, the incident of the burning bush.
2: The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my who are in evil, have given heed to their cry. Of their taskmaster,
0: or I am aware of their suffering. Okay, do you notice in verse six, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, I'm intervening, and I'm going to deal with your situation.
2: And Moses knew exactly who he was
0: talking about. Yes, when he mentioned yeah, reason. he had revelation. Right, he had Genesis in his back pocket, on his iPhone probably. <laughs> <laughs> so,
3: Sorry, <laughs>
0: Another implication is judgment and grace. And this comes from the patterns that we've already seen. God intervening in judgment and grace. The exodus is an example of God intervening in history to judge. And when there's judgment, he's, he's saving, so it's gracious as well. His dealings with the Egyptian culture is one of judgment. His dealings with the children of Israel, he has to take them out, kicking and screaming. And we'll see later on, after he's taken them back, they want to go back. Do you remember the meeting mm-hmm. that used to. Their memory is <laughs> very, very poor. They were in bondage, suffering, and they want to go back to that. So it's judgment and grace. So God's not acting on uh, people that have... But
1: at that point, would you use Deuteronomy 28?
0: Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. So it's judgment on Egypt and salvation for Israel. And when we get to heaven, we're going to... Meet Moses. And we're going to say, well, you're not Moses. You don't look anything like Moses. <laughs>
2: That's
0: the image we have of Moses. So,
2: uh, based on the Abrahamic covenant, we see when the Egyptians bless Joseph and his people, they're blessed. And they're saved. Absolutely. But, it's, but when they
0: turn their back and begin to persecute, then they suffer the Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, eschatologically... We've seen the long-range implications of the Abrahamic covenant and specifically tied to the story of the Exodus as well. And there's lots of specific Exodus prophecies as well. If you read through the text, and what God is doing, he, he's setting eschatological precedent with the children of Israel. He tells them ahead of time what he's going to do, and then he does it. And all of these are short-term In this baby group of people that are just barely coming out of the womb of Egypt. They're about to be birthed, if you will. He's setting eschatological patterns here. So that when he says things that are long range, that won't take place for millennium later, the children of Israel have a basis. Well, God did all of this short term. He can also do it long term. So we have eschatological patterns set up. Let me just give you a, a few of these real quickly. He predicts that they will be delivered and they'll be given the land. And I don't want you to read uh, since we're 3, look at verse 8, the mm, verse where that we left off. Exodus 3, 8. Yeah, these are all in Exodus.
3: So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land, a good and spacious land, a land of milk, the home of Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Beersites, Hivites, and Jebusites.
0: And these are all, you can categorize them as Canaanite peoples, even though Canaan is also included there. So there's a there's a promise. Jim, skip to 10 and 10 through 12. Now these are promises. What I want you to see, these are predictions. So God is telling them ahead of time, or telling Moses here. In other words, he's explaining to Moses what he's going to do. Very specific.
1: Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you, that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the plot of Egypt, you shall worship
0: God at the mountain. There's several promises in that. And he talks about these, I'm going to do these things as a sign, so the children of Israel are going to see things visibly, literally, such that they will begin to trust in Yahweh. In other words, Yahweh is not like the God of the Egyptians. So here's a very clear prediction of the deliverance and the giving of the land. You could read 16 and 17 that gives more detail to it. Look at verse 18, Mark. They will pay heed
1: to, to what you say, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, God of the Hebrews has met with us. So now, please, let us go a three-day journey, three days' journey to the world that we may sacrifice God. Okay.
0: So he predicts the encounter with Pharaoh. So there's an encounter with Pharaoh. And then in the same chapter, he's talking about leaving Egypt with the wealth. That detail is predicted in 21 and 22. We won't read those verses. He predicts a, the miracles that are going to be performed and a hardening of Pharaoh several times. He predicts it before Pharaoh hardens his heart. Here's a whole list of some of them 421 through 23. He predicts the Exodus again in chapter 6, and again the giving of the land, 6 6 through 8. He does it again in 7 5. This is all ahead of time. He predicts the plagues. And by the way, each plague is preceded by a prediction of what God's going to do. And sometimes he says in three days, I'm going to do this. This is all to to show that what God says, he does. When God makes a promise, he's going to follow through. And you can look at every one of, we won't look at them, but if you look at every one of the plagues... Each one of them, all ten, are preceded with God announcing what he's going to do. So he tells them, and then Moses, the next day or the next time or shortly after, does what God instructs him, and the plague comes. So all the plagues are predicted. And he talks about even salvation. After they leave and they're in the wilderness, he predicts that if they just trust him, he will deliver them. And really, they have nowhere to go. And that precedes the Exodus itself. And even in the wilderness, he predicts the provision that he will provide. And there's others as well. Lots of predictions. So you have a lot of eschatological principles that you can, that the children of Israel would have been able to trust. This is a God that knows the future. This is a God that is sovereign over it. This is a God that is omnipotent and can perform exactly what he tells us. So that's eschatology. It's also somewhat of a, and this is more by implication, but it's a foretaste of future judgment, long-range future judgment. When you get to the Book of Revelation, you will see, for example, the trumpet. Judge, many of the trumpet judgments are very similar to the plagues of Egypt. Now, John in the Book of Revelation doesn't tell us and doesn't make that tie in. But there are so many of them that are so similar that we can come to the conclusion that during that future tribulation period, God is doing a similar work. He's intervening in judgment to deliver his children, the children of Israel again. And the children of Israel that are familiar with the plagues of Egypt would say, hmm, this is just like in Egypt. The only difference is that in Egypt, God did it in a localized place on the face of the earth. The trumpet judgments are worldwide. But if he can do it on a localized level, he can do it worldwide as well. So the trumpet judgments, just jot these down. Revelation 8.7, the first trumpet judgment. The fourth one, 8.12. The fifth one, 9.3. And see how they are similar. Also, some of the bowl judgments also parallel and are similar to the uh, plagues in Egypt. 16.2, that Chapter 16 are the bold judgments, 2 and 3, verse 4, verse 10. So it's somewhat of a foretaste. I didn't mention it, but we've been on second page, except for a little bit of the introduction on the outline sheet
2: there. Always forget these. I get so caught up in looking there. That's yeah, okay.
0: My goal is to get to the end here, so... Well, we just completed looking primarily at the Exodus and related events and tying them back to the Abrahamic covenant. And part of the story in Exodus is the Mosaic law or the giving of the law. And I'd like to look at it from the perspective of another covenant. So this is... A major element of the book of Exodus is this whole idea of law, so let's put law on our timeline here, so it would be shortly after the Exodus, you can't distinguish a difference in time there, but about the same time, and it begins in chapter 19, we won't read these verses, but that's a very important passage, we'll look at one, we'll come back and look at one little passage in there, and that's... Where traditionally people identify Sinai, Mount Sinai. It's called Jebel Musa. And you can probably figure out Musa is related to what? Mountain of Umb? Moses. Mm-hmm. Moses. And that's a traditional site. There's another alternative site, but we don't have time to look at it, so we'll just go with that photograph. <laughs> 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 Yeah. That comes out of a newspaper. Yeah. Neither of these tablets comes with that. Well, sorry about that.
3: <laughs> We're taking a little bit more. We might.
0: That's right. So, this is a covenant, a contract called the Mosaic Contract. We We don't always associate it in general. Church people, in fact, don't even think about contracts. There are parties, again. And in this case, the nature of this covenant, it's conditional, so it is dependent on man's response. And you have to find out what the stipulations are to know what the requirements are. Remember the illustration I gave you, when you enter into a mortgage, there's things that apply to you, and if you don't do certain things, then there's fees associated with late payments and repossession and all that stuff. Well, this Mosaic covenant is like that. In other words, the people have responsibilities in it. So it's conditional. And God promises to treat or deal with them dependent on their response. That's part of the stipulations. So there's parties, God and the twelve tribes. And I say twelve tribes because they're not a nation yet, at least here. But it'll be binding when they do become a nation. They're simply tribes, descendants of Jacob, Not a nation yet. The stipulations are spelled out in great detail in the Mosaic Law. That Mosaic Law is, you need to also think of it not only contractually, but you need to think of it in terms of a constitution. It's Israel's constitution, just like our country has a constitution. Most countries have constitutions that basically spell out what the citizens are required to do. In other words, this is what makes you a citizen, certain stipulations. These are the things that God requires of his people in terms of that national relationship. Now, one of the main reasons, when we come to the New Testament, it says we are not under law. In other words, we are not parties to the Mosaic Covenant. We're not under that. That doesn't mean that some of the things in that Law that are stipulated are not good for us to follow. And this is a unique constitution, by the way. It deals with more than just simply the everyday issues of law, like the Hammurabi Code or secular constitutions of a nation. If we had more time, we could develop some of the more detail or some of the characteristics. But let me just bring out one major one. Since God is involved... God has instituted a constitution that deals with the heart as well, not just the outward expression. And you see a lot of that. There are there's a aspect I'll get to this that are the more what is theologians call the moral aspect of the law. And they transcend time and they transcend even this contract, but they're included in the contract. And in a sense It's applicable to any people at any age, even before Moses, even before the giving of the law. And then there's others. There are those aspects that deal with diet, that deal with every aspect, dealing with relationships, all of those aspects that are part of the Constitution that we're not under. And another element of it is blessings and curses are involved, very specific, very specific. Now, we'll come back to these blessings and cursings, Because they have impact historically. We'll talk some more about that when we get to the Palestinian. And we have a ceremony or a signing, you might say. There's a sacrifice after the giving of the law that's spelled out right in the book there, right in the book of Exodus. So it has all of the elements of a covenant or contract, a berit. It even has a sign, and God establishes a sign to remind the people. Just like you get a monthly, you might get a monthly reminder, your payment is due on your mortgage or whatever, or if you, you know, there's a reminder here, the Sabbath, every week you remember, we're under the Mosaic Covenant, we worship under that covenant. It's another reason why we don't have a Sabbath on a church, unless you're a Seventh-day Adventist or some other.
2: The Book of the Law itself also be a sign, for everyone?
0: Oh, the physical—the oh, the physical—as
2: the physical, a reminder, because it, it was among them at all times. They saw
0: it daily. Yeah, um, yeah, it was. But what that portrays, in other words, it's here's the contract, and and remember how many tablets were there? I want to say two, two. That doesn't two. sound like it's two. right. <laughs> <Two tablets. laughs> yeah, there were two copies. Yeah. In other words, the bank has a copy of your mortgage. You have a copy of the mortgage. And what's pictured there is God has a copy, and the children of Israel have a copy. By the way, when the children of Israel violated the covenant, the contract, what did Moses do? Broke it. Well, the ark of the covenant contained the, the, the tablets. Yeah, I just know Israel's copy. Yeah, Israel's. Yeah, Israel's copy. They got it just like you got your mortgage in your file cabinet. God's copy was in the holy Holies. Yes. Yes. Not, and again, not that God needs to enter into covenant, or not that God needs a copy so that he can go back and say, well, I don't remember what I promised you. So when the conditions were all over, he left. Yeah.
3: I think it was more like of a symbolism for us. Since we're yes. He making a deal. With, well, not a deal, you know, but putting it in our terms, like making a deal with us. Yeah. It was more like symbolism it's a for us. a reminder the yes. children of Israel. Yes, I don't need this right here, but I'm going to make it just so that you guys, as a yeah. visual
0: person that he I am. condescend. Yes. To us, yeah. so, so we can understand actually it. better
3: understand it. Yep. Yeah.
0: So that law, it has civil aspects that regulates the entire social culture of the nation of Israel. That part we are not under. We are not under law, so we don't have to observe the the feasts, the ceremonial. These would be the sacrifices. There's ceremonial aspects of it. We're not under those. The sacrificial system. Because Jesus basically fulfilled all of what the entire sacrificial system encompassed. And then there's a moral aspect, a spiritual aspect, that go all the way to the very heart. And only God can see the heart. That's why when Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, You have heard it said, Thou shalt not murder. That's the outward expression of violation of that commandment. And then he says, but I say, and what he's doing is he's reinstituting the essence of the moral, law, uh, the moral law, and he's saying it's not just the outward act that is a violation, but the very roots of it. In other words, anger that ends up in murder, it includes the whole spectrum. So it deals with the heart, and the Mosaic law spells these things out. It's a heart document. And those aspects have application uh, apart from Israel and are more universal, more moral. I remember
3: the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. So that would be up to that.
0: Absolutely. So let's look at, in terms of eschatology, the fulfillment of the Mosaic Law. We have several. First of all, there are promises that deal with the law beforehand, promises before. And let's look at the Exodus 19 passage. This is where the law begins to be. God moves to give them the law. They're at Sinai, five and six. Who wants to read those? Where were we? Eric read last week. And this is this is before Moses goes up and receives the law. God is basically preparing Moses and promising certain things and giving him certain instructions. And in verse five and six.
3: And if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom—pardon me—you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites.
0: Okay, that also is long range. That also is all encompassing. And notice, keep, this is a covenant, a barit. Keep my covenant. There's the conditional aspect. This is even before he enters into it. This is even before he reveals it. And it has long-range promises. You shall be my own possession. You're going to be my own people, my own nation. I'm going to have a relationship with you. In fact, it's like a marriage contract. You should be my possession among all the peoples. In other words, it's going to be apart from the Gentiles, apart from the other nations. You see
1: how important it is now too that uh, uh, that the promises of the blessings of all nations in the land were in the Abrahamic covenant, otherwise this would be an argument for replacement theology.
0: Yeah, exactly. and exactly. we're going to see that over and over again, not only here. And another phrase that is long range here, verse 6, you shall be, to me, a kingdom of priests. They are going to be a kingdom, not only national, but they will be the kingdom of God first on earth. And it's a kingdom of priests. Now, he's going to specify that down to a full priesthood, but the whole nation are to be mediators between Yahweh and the other nations. That's God's purpose for this people. They are to mediate between God and the rest of the nation. That's their purpose. This is the identical phrase that the New Testament picks up and associates it with the church in this age. And even aspects of that will not be fulfilled till the Millennial Kingdom. So even the Mosaic Covenant will not be fulfilled totally until the Millennial Kingdom. Kingdom of priests, that's God's intent. A separate nation or holy nation. In other words, you're to be apart. The law is going to set them apart. They're going to be different. They're going to have a different diet. They're going to wear different clothes. They're going to respond to the culture differently. They're going to have a different worship system. They're going to be separate, holy, a holy nation. Okay? And then Moses is going to reiterate that to the children of Israel. So God promises ahead of time, and you see fulfillment of this in time because this becomes the whole regulating document for the nation of Israel throughout their history. So it's fulfilled in history, in time, and it's ultimately fulfilled in Christ again. In fact, all of the covenants have some application in Christ. You could say that he fulfilled the religious aspect on the cross, he was the ultimate sacrifice. That's why we're not under it. And he also dealt, remember, now he opened up the diet. We're not under the Mosaic diet. We can eat pork. Exactly.
3: Thank you. I love my nice
0: pork. <laughs> so he fulfilled <laughs> the civil aspects. He fulfilled it in that he perfectly obeyed all of those civil aspects. Mm-hmm. And he perfectly was, or he was the perfect ceremonial sacrifice. And he even to some extent in the Sermon on the Mount, we have hints that he filled up with meaning or restored meaning and in that sense fulfilled the moral aspects of it. And then we have a dark period called the wilderness, and let's summarize that real quickly. Because of disobedience, we have a wilderness experience, and we won't take the time to read it, but we have chapter 14, the whole chapter, but mainly verses 1 through 4. Where God predicts that the children of Israel, that it, children over 20 years of age at that time will not enter the land because of the, the disobedience. In fact, I've got the verses here. So, and their discipline is predicted in 28 through 35. The wilderness experience, 40 years. Now they've been in the wilderness too already, so it's 38 more. So they'll be disciplined for 40 years, and there'll be a second generation that will enter the land. So after that first generation dies out, then the second generation is the one that will enter the land. And the purpose of the book of Deuteronomy is what? What does Deuteronomy mean? Hmm? What's what's Deuteronomy? Second and namas is law. So Deuteronomy is a second giving of a law to the second generation. That's why you have a repetition of a lot of what Moses is given in Exodus. You have a second giving of the law. So you have, and this is to a new generation. This is 40 years later to a new generation. And the whole book kind of reestablishes that covenant. It's a second giving of a covenant to the second generation. So it's eschatological from uh, the perspective of Moses and Aaron. Another promise that is made is that Aaron, and in the book of Numbers, there's a disobedience on even Moses' part, and God tells him that he and Aaron will not enter the land. Mm -hmm. They will not lead the children. So that's the Mosaic Law. Now, an aspect of the Mosaic Law is the Palestinian Covenant. Now, this is probably the least known of all the covenants, But if you turn to Deuteronomy, it's contained in Deuteronomy 28, first of all. We'll come back to this because this is very significant eschatologically. Essentially, in the Palestinian Covenant, God lays out the rest of Jewish history. Come back to this. The main part of the Palestinian Covenant, well, first of all, its nature, it's both unconditional because it's, a, it's an expansion of the land aspect of the Abrahamic Covenant, so that makes it unconditional. But it's also conditional in that it's a part of the Mosaic Law. So it has both aspects. So you're
3: going to be unconditional because it's part of the Abrahamic
0: It, it specifies, specifies the land aspect. Okay. And what it basically means is that Israel will ultimately occupy the full extent of the land, and they never have even to, that, to this day. It's conditional in that it spells out and predicts that they will be scattered, they will they will suffer curses throughout their history. And we'll talk some more about that when we talk about prophets. Okay. Parties, God and the twelve tribes, same as the Mosaic. Stipulations could be summarized as blessings and cursings in chapter 28. If they're obedient, then they'll have all of these blessings. And in their history, when they were obedient, they had abundant rainfall, they had productive childbearing, their crops yielded great amounts, their enemies were subdued when those few days that they were faithful. (laughs) And then in verse 15, but it it shall come about if you will not obey the Lord your God to observe all his commandments or stipulations, you could say. And his statutes, with which I charge you today, that all these curses shall come upon you. And it's kind of the counterpart. They have famines, and some of the prophets address that. The reason, or God is going to bring famine on you if you don't repent. Or God's going to bring your enemies on you if you don't you know, straighten out. And all the things that are predicted here took place historically in different periods of time. Curses and blessings. But because it's unconditional, there'll be an ultimate restoration that is contained in this covenant. And the fulfillment of the Palestinian covenant, eschatologically, they experience the blessings, they experience the discipline, and particularly that speaks of the discipline that God will bring, and all the way into 60, yeah, 63 starts a future repentance, and also a expelling out of the land, an eventual expelling out of the land. And that's happened more than once historically. It's part of the covenant. And it looks way ahead to the end of the Old Testament history of Israel to the, to an exile, 28, 36 through 37. In fact, it uses the word captivity in verse 41. So it predicts their captivity. And there will be a repentance and restoration, chapter 30, 1 through 6. The restoration under Ezra and Nehemiah was a partial fulfillment of that, but the ultimate fulfillment is still future even for Mark. Palestinian Covenant. It speaks of the judgment of the nations, and this is a major subject of the prophets, and it speaks of an ultimate blessing in the land. In the land, 30 verses 8 through 10. That won't be fulfilled till the Millennial Kingdom. Jim, why don't you read those passages? Why don't you start in verse 8 through
1: 10?
0: I'm writing as fast You're writing as you can. As fast as I can. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you copy. Oh, it. Actually, start with, start with verse 7. 30, verse 7.
1: And the Lord your God will inflict
0: all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecute you. That's long range. He's still doing that today. And then verse 8. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I commanded you today. That's future. Yeah. In other words, what he commanded then that very day is even future from the 21st century. Keep reading. Then the Lord your God
1: will prosper you abundantly all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, and in the offspring of your cattle, and in the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good. Just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul.
0: Okay, and that won't ha- that, that won't happen till another covenant is instituted that is in terms of Israel's future, the new covenant. So it kinda hints at a new covenant here. That I think verses eight through ten predicts. A millennial condition. In the land, material blessings, productivity, rejoicing, that has never been fulfilled historically, maybe partially during David and Solomon, but that's about it. And it was short-lived. This is the Palestinian covenant. It's eschatological, it's future. And I think it's ultimate, and it's blessing in the land. That alone eliminates all millennials. Pardon my
3: ignorance, why is it called Palestinian... Covenant in opposition
0: to? Well, you're accusing me of being ignorant, too, because I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think mainly because it's associated with the land. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. That's why it. I think, but okay. I'm not sure. Okay. And you've seen this already. So I showed you the land aspect pertains. It's part of the Mosaic Covenant, but it's also part of the Abrahamic, and it's the Palestinian Covenant. I distinguish it because, let's see, there's a verse in there. It's part of the Mosaic, but yet at the same time there's a distinction made. Look at 29.1. Mark, why don't you read those? These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sins of Israel. And okay, this is a different location. So, different location. The other one is at Sinai. Keep reading. Besides the covenant which he had made with them at Horeb. See the difference there? In other words, he made another one at Horeb, which is synonymous with Sinai. 29.1. That seems to make a distinction between what he's dealing with right here that begins in chapter 28 through chapter 30. Yet it's part of the Mosaic covenant, part of the Deuteronomy covenant, kind of a subset. So I see it as a subset of the Mosaic but it deals with the the land, so it's a subset of the Abrahams. All right.
1: Uh, also, the you know, when he describes uh, in chapter thirty, verse nine, yeah, he says that the Lord will again rejoice over you for justice. He rejoiced over. I mean, I don't think that's ever.
0: Mm-mm. That's why I see it long range, millennial even. Yeah. Are we
2: going to look at how people try to explain this away? Because it's so clear. How could you have a different...
0: People do that. The the easy answer is they omit this overview of the Old Testament. In other words, they... And they spiritualize. In other words, they have to spiritualize all of these fine points that we have. Yeah, it's a spiritualization. So that's Exodus and law. And now we have... What are the three elements that make up a nation? People. <laughs> common, people. Common exactly, people. Right. Common people.
3: Yes, common people. Land.
0: Well, and yeah. Then common constitution, constitution that binds believes, the people yes. together and a common land. So the next major event that we put on our timeline is the conquest, where God is going to give them the land that He promised ahead of time. So we not only have eschatology, but in the Old Testament we have a fulfillment of Lot. Of things that God not only promised but entered even into covenant. And it's another display, another example of God's grace and judgment. We're going to see these themes over and over grace and judgment. I think
2: he's trying to make a point.
0: <laughs> trying to make a point, yeah. Grace to the children of Israel, they don't deserve it, and judgment. On whom? The Canaanites. The Canaanites. And all the while, the children of Israel are observing all of this. They're seeing it. They're experiencing God's grace, and they're observing. In fact, in this case, the only difference between this judgment and, for example, the judgment of the flood or the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is the instrument. God has chosen to use the children of Israel as his instrument. And he spells out very Much in detail, what he wants them to do.
2: Could we throw mercy in there as well? Because he did give them four hundred years to
0: turn around, and
1: they didn't.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, a lot of things related to grace, mercy, compassion. So the conquest, God's grace, and I've got just examples at every one of these points. These are violations of the covenant. God could have said, "We're done. Rip it up." The first one, almost in the middle of the giving of the law, we have the breaking of the covenant. At Sinai, right underneath, where God displays himself very miraculously in thunder and lightning and shaking of the earth, we have the little incident in chapter 32. They make a calf, Mm
3: -hmm.
0: a golden calf. They were taken out of Egypt, but they took Egypt along with them. In other words, the idolatry idolatry of Egypt. Yeah, they took the idolatry of Egypt. So Exodus 32, 1 and 4. And in fact, what does God do there? What does he do? Moses has to argue with God. <laughs> he has to convince God. No, 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 no. God says, I'm going to strike him down. He had every right to strike him down. And, and, right. and he started over with Moses. right in line
2: with covenant. Right. With
0: the yeah, he's condescending to Moses to bring to Moses' memory, God can't do that. God can't die. God can't do this. He's got a covenant with these people. And what will the Egyptians say? So God... Listens to Moses, Moses talks God out. Well, mm-hmm. anthropomorphically. Yeah, don't
2: do this for your name's sake. Yes, yeah, so exactly. He has the light bulb moment.
0: <laughs> so it's grace. And God says, okay, we'll take the next step. We have the unbelief at Kadesh Barnea. This is in Numbers before they enter the land. And God could have done the same thing. I'm just illustrating grace here. This is Numbers 14 22 through 23. We have the defeat at Ai, at Jericho. They obey God to the letter, and what does God do? The walls fall. It wasn't as a result of an earthquake. There's an explanation in the text itself. It wasn't as a result of the vibration of their uh, trumpets.
3: I love that, firstly. Do you see that I, in Portuguese, that so would be like, ouch. <laughs>
2: Good.
0: Well, it was. That makes
3: sense. Ouch. Ouch, yes. Yeah, like yeah. When you say, like, oh, my God, ouch, it hurts.
0: Yeah, so he disciplined them there, but he didn't abandon them. He Keeps the process going, and they recover. And even uh, later in the book of Judges, we have a failure at Bochim. And at every stage, and even in between all the grumblings in the wilderness, God is dealing with them by grace. So there's grace. And then here's what we jumped ahead to. To make a nation, you need a common people. So God has brought that common people, bound them together through common experiences, through the exodus And even through the wilderness, they're a common people now. They're bound together. And at the giving of the law, and then under Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, they have their constitution, common constitution. And now under Joshua, they will take the land as they obey God, the land of Canaan. So there you have common people, common constitution, common and then we have a period of darkness again. Remember the cycles of sin that we talked about? Well, we have the cycles of sin where sin has its degenerating effects and God is patient to let those effects take their full effect. And then he intervenes in discipline and judgment. And the main theme of the book of Judges, it points out to a need for a king. In other words, a leader, godly person that will lead the people. And that's how the book ends. Uh, In fact, the little phrase, in those days, there was no king, kind of emphasized there's something lacking that God still needs to work. He's Mm going to provide a king. So eschatologically, he's fulfilling the covenants.
1: I don't follow what you just said because God was a king and God didn't approve of them for a king.
0: Yes. There's a couple things going on there. Yeah. Good question, though. I think God intended, all the way from Genesis 128, he intended that man would rule on the earth. He served, in other words, he's always king. I mean, he never relinquishes his throne. He's always sovereign. He's always king. He always has his kingdom. But he intended ultimately to work through the people, through a man. And if you look at the Abrahamic covenant, it predicts kings. And it's referring to the descendants. They're kings. So even the the Abrahamic covenant in, in chapter 17 Predicts kings. So God intended a king, a human king, to rule the earth. And what they were doing is, I think what God is arguing, you're premature here. In other words, you want, and not only premature, but your whole idea of how I want this to come about is all messed up. Mm-hmm. They wanted a king like all of the other nations. We want a king like everybody else. We don't want to be left, we don't want to be odd. We want to be like everybody else, which is totally contrary to what God had. He wanted them to be a separate people with a king after his own heart. So he gives them the king that they wanted. So I think God intended all along to give them a human king and descendants from them.
1: That
0: that would eventuate into the ultimate human king. It
1: It came about as a result of the effort of the flesh. Yes.
0: It's an example of the efforts of the flesh, exactly. Does that make sense?
1: Moses
2: he, he mentored Joshua and, and Caleb and then kind of passed the reins on to Joshua and when Joshua finishes he just kind of gives it to the people and says hey rule yourselves and then one of the first one of the first judges if I'm not wrong is Othniel who is the, the son-in-law of Caleb so it seems like Caleb did what Moses did to him but Joshua didn't he just said hey here, here's the here's the law rule yourselves and just went Bad yeah mother.
0: <laughs> yeah chose a need man has a an inward need for a ruler or a person that oversees. So eschatologically we could trace fulfillments of the covenant so far. I gave you some of those already and you see the outworking of that during the period of Joshua and also the period of the judges. So some of these fulfillments, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant starts with a seed that'll eventually into the family and you could even include there the tribes that eventuate into a nation. So the, the unfolding, you might say. Now, these are all partial. They're not ultimate. These are all partial fulfillments. Under Joshua, we have a nation, full-fledged. Common people, common constitution, and now common land.
3: So uh, so you say, what what went partial right there? Was it the, the family? No,
0: nation. Okay, the nation.
3: Okay.
0: Yeah, but it's not the ultimate, because it okay. still awaits Christ, and it still awaits the millennial kingdom. Palestinian, now they're in the land. Now they're in the land. And this is also partial. They'll be kicked out of the land a few times. But at least it's a partial fulfillment. Mosaic, you see times of obedience here and there to the covenant. But you also see disobedience. In fact, disobedience is probably more frequent than obedience. So covenants are fulfilled. It's also another preview of final judgment. And again, if you go to the Book of Revelation, you're going to find final judgments. There's going to be an ultimate separation of evil. And I define judgments as God intervening to separate evil. And there are several of them. I gave you the example of the flood, where he separates Noah and his family from the corruption of the culture, and the flood destroys the culture. There's going to be an ultimate separation, where Genesis three fifteen is ultimately fulfilled. And this is just one more judgment in a series of judgments. In fact, there's even judgments future from 21st century. And in the tribulation, we see hints of the same separating, the same judgments. And they're very bloody. What God called the children of Israel to do, to wipe out the Canaanites, it was a bloody thing, gruesome. Read Revelation 6, 8. That's very gruesome. 9, 15, 18, 14... Uh, 9 through 11, in fact, the uh, the Revelation 14 passage. The imagery is of a vineyard, and in a vineyard, you gather the grapes and put them in this vat or this container, and you stomp the grapes to squeeze out all the juice. The imagery that John is giving here, or God is giving to John, is that that's what it's going to be like when there's the final separating. It's like God's just squishing the blood out of human beings. It's bloody. It's a mess. But it's a separating out. Judgment is a separating out. And he judges that that is destroying that that he loves. And he preserves also. So the tribulation is foreshadowed, I think, in what God is doing with Joshua. And ultimately, there'll be a judgment on Babylon itself. We talked a little bit about that. And that is bloody. It's
2: the physical Babylon.
0: (laughs) Physical Babylon. Physical blood Physical judgment. Yeah, read those verses. Eight and, 18, eight and nine and 19. Very bloody. And then ultimately Armageddon, the blood is going to flow to the bridal's bits for 200 miles. We just have a foretaste of that in the destruction of the Canaanites. So we have a pattern or a situation set so that these future things You can visualize them by reading some of these Old Testament things. We have patterns that are being set eschatologically. And the only difference I've already mentioned in terms of the judgment on Canaan is that Israel is God's instrument. Whereas in the Tribulation, God's going to use astrophysical, geophysical phenomenon to effect the judgment, and he'll use the evil of mankind himself. But as far as Canaan, Israel is the instrument. Probably a good place to take a break.